So we ended up last time, we went through like a real quick movement through uh, the end of Revelation 13. So I might try to recap that just a little um, and run into 14 and 15. And then if we have time, if we can kind of barrel into 16 a little bit, we might do uh, just to see how far we can kind of push to give us a little bit more time. Because I think the, with our uh, path should be is that if we can get through 16, maybe part of 17 today, we should be able to get um, 17 through 18, 19 next week, and then finish off 2021 the week after. Um, and I wanted to try to leave some time for some questions because I think there's a lot that's uh, questionable. So uh, we'll see if we uh, what we have time for in the last week. But that's kind of where we're uh, where we're heading. So last week um, we we kind of went from. Uh, we finished we finished up the trumpets and then we moved into um, what I think points to the underlying causes of these problems that the churches are seeing because uh, there has to be a reason for the break because we went through seven seals and then seven trumpets and then we have kind of like this larger interlude that goes on before we get in, introduced uh, into the seven bowls which is the final recapitulation like we'll notice the language that John starts to use once we hit the bowls and like you can tell this thing is done we went from a fourth to a third and now everything's kind of over. He's bringing us right up to this, uh, to kind of this end. Um, but we're kind of being introduced in this segment to um, the different players that are underlying what's going on in Revelation. Like, what, what's with all the troubles with the churches? And we saw in, uh, in chapter 12, we see Satan's thrown down from heaven, um, and he's kind of thrashing, and is, uh, it's woe to the earth. And so this starts to make sense in the context of, what, why are they seeing all this persecution? Where are all this trouble coming from? Um, it's, it's coming from Satan, who's been chucked out of heaven. Um, and that's where all the, the problems for the believers is coming from. And then we started seeing descriptions of... Uh, a, a first and second beast. There's a beast that comes out of the sea. It looks a lot like that creepy Daniel beast. Um, we know that creepy things come from the sea, kind of from a biblical perspective. Um, he's got ten horns, seven heads, so he's got similar attributes as um, as Satan that's thrown out of heaven. We, he's uh, given a mouth, he's uttering blasphemous words, and he's exercising authority for 42 months. We kind of reiterated that time frame. It's the same as time times half a time, 1,260 days. And I said that those are symbolically standing for it's a specified amount of time and I think the right way to read that is to say this is the time from between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming so these all make sense within the context of what they're dealing with and they continue to make sense in our context these are, these are still things that are true um, during our lives just as much as they were for the churches in uh, in Asia Minor and so that's that's what that time period is, is kind of pointing back to um, we said that the uh, the first beast is probably going to, to represent the powers of evil that lie behind kind of different kingdoms or governments of the world. Um, and the reason that these carry risks, and this is tough for us, especially we come from a very um, uh, nationalistic nation. Um, we're still young. We're still pretty excited about ourselves. Uh, there's Most of the nations have kind of died off. They're like, yeah, Greece. Um, but um, but to think that it's possible that that is it is through those types of organizations that point people away from God or like point your allegiance to something else, point your um, your fealty to a different kingdom. Um, they don't seem so. I don't know that I would have immediately thought of that these are real risks of nations and nations. It's not that nations are wrong. It's just um, when they set themselves up at times with the way that they treat people or um, the kind of um, nationalism that they're calling to. If it calls you above your call to Jesus, then it is doing the very thing that the first beast does. Okay, It puts you at risk for things. Um, I think that's something that we're running into um, even, even from a modern political realm. you just got to be careful of what you're actually being pointed to. Um, and am I, am I more 
um, nationalistically uh, excited than I am for the kingdom of Jesus. And that is not saying that you can't be grateful for where you live, but it's just recognize that that's where some of the risk comes from. For them, it would have was a very real problem um, for Rome, but I don't think it's exclusive to that. I think you run that possibility for nations everywhere um, where you can just be pointing some sort of allegiance that otherwise um, is is redirecting things that you otherwise owe to Christ. Okay, um, So that was our beast. The second beast uh, is a beast on the land. It rises out of the earth, has two horns like a lamb. It speaks like a dragon. It's so it has some of these attributes of, of Satan who was described as the dragon. Um, and its job is to um, make the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast. Okay, So in this realm, when we see later on in Revelation, it starts to talk about a, a false prophet. I think this is probably describing your second beast. Okay, It's someone whose job speaks on behalf of another beast and points you back to them and says, worship the beast. A com- the combination of this and the first beast probably is, is a bit of our antichrist. And that's why I think the nature of that parody comes from. We, we've seen all these kind of attributes of these beasts where it, it seems like Jesus, but it's not Jesus. They're the, um, there's like the crowns and it's not the was who is and is to come, but it's like they were, but they're not and they're not going to be again. Um, and so there's all this parody going on between the beasts. So I think this is like a antichrist, not in some kind of weird uh, evil ruler or something, but more of a like they're, they're the opposite of Jesus. They're trying to act the part of what God or Christ does, um, but they're, um, they're lesser. Okay? They obviously don't meet that criteria, and that's why where your governments fail, where your people that point you to these governments, to the worship of these governments fail. And again, from a, um, from a churches in Asia Minor perspective, this makes a lot of sense for the imperial cult. We said one of the things that, that you had to do is, is they, um, they treated their emperor like a god, and they created statues of them everywhere. When you go into... Um, to Ephesus, there's like they're lined um, with statues of these uh, of Roman rulers and things that you were supposed to submit to, and so this makes a lot of sense as prophets or imperial cult type of folk. Um, again, pointing you back to the first beast and say, worship. No one's like our government. Okay, no one's like our first beast. Um, they provide protection. I don't know if you guys um, ha- have listened to the end time stuff or you went through the class with me. Um, one of the things we said was the the Pax Romana, which was anybody remember what that meant? Yeah, peace of Rome, right? Rome brings peace. Well, biblically, Christ brings peace. And so that's an example of maybe where we can think of the government as promising something that Christ only can provide. And it's not that the governments aren't responsible for that. Like Paul talks about the governments are are to keep keep order and law. Um, But it's have we put all our hope in in our nations versus the the kingdom of Jesus? Okay? Do you guys understand kind of the distinction that we're trying to make there with our first and second beasts? They're going to stand for that type of thing. Um, and so we got through uh, the second beast. We talked a little bit about uh, the number 666. I said, if, if we accept that it's that, it's, uh, that gematria, where it's numbers standing for letters, um, then the likely representation there, what I think is the... the Probably the safest representation is that it simply stands for beast. It's the number of its name, 666 for beast. Um, uh, I, think, I think Dan's suggestion that it is just shy of completion um, is also a viable option. Okay, um, when it talks about man's number, if you think a man's number is six, um, then it's short of something or being the complete of something, which would make sense if you look at the comparisons of, of what these beasts are representing. They're claiming to be something that is God or that looks like God, but isn't quite, it's just not quite there. They will never be God. They will never live up to that. It's a bit of a parody of that. Um, so I don't think, I think Dan's suggestion from last week is, is, um, is certainly an option. Um, but otherwise, if we go from a gematria standpoint, it probably simply stands for beast, which means we're not concerned about 
about things on um, actual 666s showing up in barcodes or, or uh, people's names or things of this nature. Okay, that's just there's no reason to be afraid of that type of thing because if we've the way that we've read Revelation so far, um, we're not revealing truths that happen at a specific time, but they are true things, true aspects of our reality. We're just able to see kind of from God's perspective what our reality actually looks like, and those things have been true largely throughout time, as opposed to happening at a specific uh, at a specific time. Um, one of the things I did want to talk about, because it's going to show up again, um, it says, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. This is just towards the end of chapter 13. Um, I, I wonder if this has some relevance back to Deuteronomy 6. Um, let me pull it up real quick and I'll read it to you. This is called the Great Shema. Um, and it's something that... Um, that it, like you would you would recite daily you would recite the great Shema it's uh, Deuteronomy six four, uh, four to we'll look at starting in chapter or, uh, verse four um, and it starts this way it says Hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might sounds familiar right like we've kind of heard some of that it says and these words that I command you today shall be on your heart you shall teach them diligently to your children you shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and there shall be his frontlets between your eyes. Head? Arm. Yep. You shall write them on your doorposts of your house and on your gates. And you know what? I was, I was actually reading this earlier today. You know what I thought? I feel like we should have this in the church. <laughs> right? Like a wall somewhere, right? Maybe we could fit a Shema somewhere in the, in the church building. Um, and so I, I think there's probably an aspect of this too um, if, we, if we understand that the mark on your head or on your arm um, is for uh, is basically who you belong to, which is what this represents, which is what our count of the 144,000, the seals have kind of represented, then that actually probably makes a lot more sense too. Um, and what it says uh, you can't buy or sell in the marketplace, we said that probably has some relevance too. If you're not willing to, to bow down to, to one of the beasts to worship the government or the imperial cult, um, you may not be allowed to transact business um, if you don't worship the patron gods within your, uh, within your different... Um, you know, work streams or whatever, okay? So now we moved in. So now we're moving out of the second beast. I think we have, like I said, you have those two beasts where I think they're kind of our Antichrist figure. You also have a false prophet within that second beast. Um, and you also, if we, our, our notion of parody kind of continues. We have dragon and two beasts. We have like a trinity looking thing, like a false looking trinity action. Um, and the point of all this, and I think we're going to see this come out in some of the Old Testament verses that are going to come out in Revelation 14 and 15, is you're worshiping something that is not worth worshiping. Okay? It, it falls short. Um, we're going to be represented with, uh, in, in chapter 13, it's going to say, here's what happens if you don't get the mark of the beast. And then you get to, then we, we learn later, here's what happens if you don't follow God. Right, And it's always worse or it's always better on God's side. And so the parody here is people that are, or, or Satan or the beasts or organizations or governments, people that are trying to act as if they are God and they will simply fall short and they do not deserve our worship nor our, our, our allegiance. Okay, So I think that's that uh, now that we've been introduced to these folks, now we're going to kind of see the counterpoint to it in chapter 14. All right, here it goes. Before you go. Yes. Um, Looking back into like the end times class and talking about just different aspects of beasts and Daniel seven and different yep. things like that, coming across like Babylon was considered like gold and a lion. Yeah. Persia, silver, a bear, a ram. Greece was bronze, a leopard, a goat, king of the north, and Rome was iron and beasts with horns. Yeah. 
So that kind of fits right into kind of what we're talking about as far as these dragons and these yep. these beasts coming out that have these different attributes. You know, first century churches are going to understand what horns exactly. and iron and rams and right. goats and all of those types of things are based on their knowledge. Exactly right. Exactly right. Daniel, um, Daniel 7, even parts of Daniel 8, um, Daniel 3 undergird a lot of what we're talking about. But yeah, definitely. I agree. Uh, okay. Then I looked, and this is uh, chapter 14. I think if you guys are in your, um, in your notebooks, it's like page 14, uh, maybe 11? Page 9. 9. I have no idea. I gave, I gave up the booklet. All right. Then I looked, and behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, and with him 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Counterpoint, right? And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. No one could learn that song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation and tribe and language and people. And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give Him glory, because the hour of His judgment has come. And worship Him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. These worshippers of the beast in its image and whoever received the mark of its name. Here is a call for the endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. Exclamation point. All right. Um, so if we look, it says, Look and hold on Mount Zion. So let's look at Psalm chapter 2. And let's see if we can get our reference to uh, Mount Zion. Hey, Nick. No problem, man. Yeah. Hey, come join us at the table, dude. Yeah. Are there room? Here's your pamphlet. Uh, and I think it's page nine we're at in the scripture. Okay. Wait, was that was right? I got that yeah, where you guys said nine? Okay, all right. Um, all right, so this is uh, Psalm 2. This is generally considered a uh, messianic psalm. It was about David also. We look back on it and say it is about Jesus. Um, but we're looking for uh, Zion. And we'll start in verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? This should sound familiar. We've, we've pulled this one up a couple times. The kings of the earth set themselves together and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion. 
my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will make the nations your heritage, and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. So, um, I think our context of, of Zion is probably this. Um, I don't think we have to believe it as a particular place in time, right? If that goes with the theme of what we talked about so far in Revelation. But it seems to be a, um, kind of an eschatological place or like a, an end times or all times place um, of which um, basically God's justice pours forth from. Okay, his rule and his justice. So when he talks about, um, behold, on Mount Zion stood the Lamb, it is, it is Jesus standing in justice and ruling. And he carries with him the 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. Again, a comparison between um, the descriptions of the beast and uh, the descriptions of uh, who belongs to God. And I heard a voice from heaven like the roar of many waters and like the sound of loud thunder. The voice I heard was like the sound of harpists playing on their harps. And they were singing a new song before the throne and before the four living creatures and before the elders. Um, So a new song. Let's look at a couple other things. Can someone look up Isaiah 43? And then I'll do Psalm 33. Uh, So I'll start with Isaiah uh, Psalm 33. And then if someone can find Isaiah 43 in the meantime. Uh, and we're, we're basically looking for a new song. How can we understand the context of a new song? Uh, Psalm 33. Shout for joy in the Lord, O you righteous. Praise befits the upright. Give thanks to the Lord with the lyre and make melody to him with the harp of ten strings. Sing to him a new song. Play skillfully on the strings with loud shouts. For the word of the Lord is upright and all his work is done in faithfulness. He loves righteousness and justice. The earth is full of the steadfast love of the Lord. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap. He puts the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe of him. For he spoke, and it came to be. He commanded, and it stood firm. Firm. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He frustrates the plans of the peoples. The counsel of the Lord stands forever, the plans of his heart to all generations. Blessed is the nation whose God is the Lord, the people whom he has chosen in his heritage. You know, just notice that sounds a lot like Psalm 2, <laughs> right? Remember who God is, um, warning to the nations that are against him um, type, of, type of promise. So I think they're singing a new song. It's generally a praise to God and referencing his victory over enemies, okay? Something has happened. They've seen the hand of God um, go forth in some way or the other and it is a praise to him because he is victorious um, which kind of sets the tone for part of what we just read kind of coming through this verse is if we've had here's the dangers of the thrashing dragon and of the persecution of the believers and now we get this picture of Jesus and a new song is being sung so it kind of casts the image it's like okay all right, God will be victorious even over these things that we recognize are kind of undergirding the concerns that we've seen so far in Revelation. Um, do that when they won their victories, they come back to the great parade. I don't know if there are songs included, but they have this big. There very what there was the um, the triumphal entry imagery where you would have like the the conquering Roman uh, either general or emperor at the head of a quadriga. You'd have four horses, um, and they would people would be dressed in white, kind of, uh, and and they would go through town, uh, and they would lead the um, the who they had conquered in front of them, um, and kind of march them through to be mocked, uh, and then ultimately they would be taken uh, up to the front of uh, one of the temples, and then the um, the emperor or the general would would kill them. Basically 
basically sacrifice them at the front of the temple. Um, and that's how the, the Roman uh, triumphs would work. And so there would be that type of celebration and stuff kind of winding through the city with this, uh, all those types of things. So yeah, I mean, I think there's an image of that, certainly. Um, all right, so no one could learn the song except the 144,000 who had been redeemed from the earth. It is these who have not defiled themselves with women, for they are virgins. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Now, well, so here's the, here's the problem I think we got here. So if our 144,000 is basically the people as... as um, belong to God, right? They've been sealed and belong to God. This not defile themselves with women becomes a little bit problematic um, because that's, that simply doesn't seem to be the nature. Of, like marriage is not uh, spoken of poorly within scripture. Um, there's not an implicit command um, that everyone would be a virgin. And so the question is, is like, is this a literal thing or based upon the trajectory of Revelation, is there some way that we should understand it come from a symbolic perspective? So I think we have some options here. Um, there is under, um, let's look at... Well, we're using the word redeemed. We've been redeemed from the earth. So once we're redeemed, we're spotless. Yeah. Are we, are we virgins again? Are we so, blameless? We're pure? We're... I think that's exactly what he's, what he's getting well, we at. We have new bodies, so we would be. I don't know that, that there's no sex in heaven. I'm not. I'm not firm on that. Custis. Well, we're entering into heaven. We, well, okay, yeah, maybe, maybe in the there. Okay, yeah, I'm with you. We're redeemed here, though. I think is because. Do not spoil your fun. No one could learn that song except the hundred forty-four thousand who had been redeemed from the earth. Right. Right. I think once we're redeemed, we become. So let's look at, let's see, 1 Corinthians, this might help. Virgin's a way of pure, of saying purity. I think that's what it's getting at. Let's let's check this out on First um, Corinthians eleven. Um, now I commit. This is Paul writing to the church in Corinth, and he says, "Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, even as I deliver them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. The head of a wife is her husband. The head of Christ is God." Every, did I write down the wrong verse in this one too? That is not what I wanted. Oh, that's a real bummer. Um, it basically describes. Um, the verse I'm thinking of, it describes the church as a virgin, as a virgin bride to Jesus, right? Yeah. So, like, so like as a group, we have that description of ourselves. Yes. And if the, um, so if the 144,000, the sealed God of people, if that is the church, then that, that's a consistent description. I gotta stop taking notes like 30 minutes before I get here. It's a real disaster. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. That sounds scripturally, yes? yes. Okay? Good. Yeah. Um, so I, th- that's what I'm getting at, though, is I think, I think it is a call for, it recognizes our purity in light of Jesus. Um, and so this is a right description of God's people um, from that perspective. And I think the rest of those things kind of come out the same way. It is these who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. Um, so that, that goes back to a lot of what we've talked about, which is um, our lives are open, everything's on the table, wherever Jesus goes, we follow and we recognize the life that Jesus led may lead us to places um, that are no promise of societal comfort, that are no promise of protection of our physical health or well-being, but it most certainly is a spiritual protection. In fact, it is through that following of Christ um, wherever he goes and ultimately in death at times that leads to the downfall of Satan and his, um, his our death is also our victory over him. And so 
like his description of our purity um, is, is kind of coupled with it is these who follow the lamb wherever he goes, people who follow Christ. Um, it says these have who have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits for God uh, and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's look at a couple other things. Let's look because at nobody in this room would be a, would be in the one hundred forty four thousand. Right. There's no there's no uh, reason for Christ if this is a literal number. Right. Right, the, exactly. If that's a description of God's that's people. That's a description. Nobody's going to get there. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because you might be a virgin, but you might be a liar. Yeah. Or well, it's a 12, that's 12. The 12 tribes of Israel. Right. The 12, right. What other 12 there are. Right. So let's look at... Um, Let's hope my notes are right on this one. Ah, here we go. So this seems to come back to a phrase in uh, Zephaniah. We're getting these books you've never heard of. We're getting in on them. Okay? We're getting in on them. All the Old Testament, right? Yeah. All the uh, the minor prophets. They're coming out in spades. What chapter? Zephaniah 3. Um, so I'm going to start in verse 9, but let's see if this makes sense in connection with some of the stuff that we've been talking about. Um, for, at the, for at the time I will change the speech of the peoples to a pure speech, that all of them may call upon the name of the Lord and serve him with one accord. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshippers, the daughters of my dispersed ones, shall bring my offering. On that day you shall not be put to shame because of the deeds by which you have rebelled against me. For then I will remove from your midst your proudly exultant ones, and you shall no longer be haughty in my holy mountain. But I will leave in your midst a people humble and lowly. They shall seek refuge in the name of the Lord, those who are left in Israel. They shall do no injustice and speak no lies, nor shall there be found in their mouth a deceitful tongue, for they shall graze and lie down, and none shall make them afraid. That's got a really cool Psalm 23 image to it, right? Um, as you call back to God and he leaves you where you are doing no injustice and speaking no lies, um, then you are calm and may graze and lie down and none shall make them afraid. Sing aloud, O daughter of Zion. Shout, O Israel. Kind of cool in the context of a new song in Revelation. Rejoice and exult with all your heart, O daughter of Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away the judgments against you. He has cleared away your enemies. The King of Israel, the Lord, is in your midst. You shall never again fear evil. Again, coming out of the comparison of what just we just got introduced, this makes a ton of sense um, and it's kind of a, it's a shared perspective. On that day it shall be said to Jerusalem, Fear not, O Zion. Let not your hands grow weak. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will be quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. I will gather those of you who mourn for the festival so that you will no longer suffer reproach. Behold, at that time I will deal with all your oppressors and I will save the lame and gather the outcast. And and I will change their shame into praise and renown in all the earth. At that time, I will bring you in. At that time, when I gather you together, for I will make you renowned and praised among all the peoples of the earth when I restore your fortunes before your eyes, says the Lord. This is a beautiful part of Zephaniah. Um, three. And actually, like all these references, um, if I look back on them, I only want one verse. But the truth is, is like as you start to read the verses that come before and after, like, I think just blooms, doesn't it? I found the Corinthians one. It's actually Second Corinthians eleven. Blast. Two Corinthians. And it's uh, the the header of it is Paul and the false apostles. Okay. Okay. I hope you will be I hope you will put up with a little of my foolishness, but you are already doing that. I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I promised you to one husband to Christ. 
so that I might present you as a pure virgin to him. But I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, your minds may somehow be led astray from your sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Okay. And it goes on, for if someone comes to you and preaches a Jesus other than the Jesus we preached, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received with us, or a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it easily enough, but I do not think I am the least inferior of those super apostles. So he kind of goes right. in to be able to spy the deceiver. That's it. Right. Same circumstance, right? It fits right in. Lured away by beasts. Yeah. Warnings to our, in chapters 2 and 3, to the churches of being taken in by false notions and redirected from those types of things. Yeah, yeah. And he's saying presenting the church as a pure virgin then. Right. As long as you're not de- as deceived long as you're by. not deceived yep. by. Yep, so yep, yep. Same context. Same context. Exactly. Very good. Second Corinthians. Second Corinthians Corinthians 11. Okay. Um, And then we have, um, it is these who follow the Lamb wherever he goes. These have been redeemed from mankind as first fruits and the Lamb, and in their mouth no lie was found, for they are blameless. Let's look at James 1.18. I thought this was kind of cool. First fruits shows up three different times in the Old Testament. Uh, It basically says, uh, bring your quality to the Lord. Okay, your, your first fruits, your good, your good responses, bring it into the Lord. Um, but then James, James had a pretty cool uh, and interesting reference to it. So let's, uh, let's look at that. This is, uh, I'll start in 16. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. So it's also kind of an interesting concept. If we look at the whole whole um, trajectory of revelation and it is if we are the first fruits of his creation that speaks to the redemption of all of his creation which we hear um, Paul kind of talks about it's like creation groans to basically be reconciled um, back to Christ Um, even as as we were part of bringing that down God will bring it back and so if we are the first fruits of that creation it starts the process of God reconciling all things back to him and this is this concept we look at the when we talk about um, kind of rapture stuff we said look it's not like we're leaving the earth and leaving some time of which then other things are going going on um, the the people that don't belong to God are judged the people that belong to God are taken from the earth we meet him in the air and at that point in time it is the entire universe that is that is refined through fire okay and then we come back because ultimately it is the world that is being put back to rights as God initially created it and then we will live as we were intended to forever with him in his presence on the earth after it has been kind of redeemed and so it's cool to think that if we are the start the first fruits of that creation of that recreation um, that the rest is then yet to come. And so I kind of like the thought of that James verse kind of applying into that of us as first fruits, the first step in God's reconciliation of the world back to him. Uh, and then there's another re- cool reference in Jude 24. Let's look at that real quick. Uh, oh, wait. Hold on. Jude 24. I mix up my, uh, my Judes and my Joels. Joel's old style. Jude is new. Um, it says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy. So it kind of speaks back to the, the broad perspective there, um, to the only God. Blameless. What does your say? It just says to present you before the glorious presence without fault, I guess. Sorry. Uh, okay, yeah. That's, that's just a little, a little bit different. Yeah. 
but we actually we do see we do see some connection here. What do we got um, presented to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, to be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Good, let's move on. Now we have the messages of uh, three angels. It says, Then I saw another angel flying directly overhead with an eternal gospel to proclaim to those who dwell on earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. For, And he said with a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come, and worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. Another angel, a second, followed, saying, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great, she who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. So let's look at a couple different references for um, fallen Babylon. So this is our first introduction to Babylon the great as a character. Okay, the name has kind of showed up, but Babylon the Great as a character has shown up. Um, notice we had a tie. We have seen the word great, though, attached to somebody. Do you guys remember where that was? It was to a city. It was, it was to Jerusalem. No. Right? We expected Jerusalem to be described as a holy city, but it was described as the great city. And great always seems to be attached to things that are actually separated from God as opposed to attached to them. Um, because it was the great city where uh, their Lord was crucified. Okay? Yeah, because pretty much everything that's attributed to God then is holy. Yes. It's described as holy instead of... Instead of great, great. Yep. And there are there are some who look back in that when we, um, when we were talking about that who would say that um, the holy city when he was measuring um, was should have been Jerusalem, but like with Jerusalem being described as great, um, I actually don't think that was the, that's the intention there um, because because I think Jerusalem, if you think about the time frame that they're in, falls under God's judgment. Like they have fled from Jerusalem. Jesus lamented over Jerusalem, mm-hmm. um, and so I, I actually don't think that's the kind of the path that um, that Revelation is trying to describe. Um, so let's look at Jeremiah fifty-one and hopefully Isaiah nine. Um, and we're looking for uh, Babylon the Great. Uh, we'll start in, I don't know if you guys headings over your, over your chapters, but my top of my Jeremiah 51 says, The Utter Destruction of Babylon. And starting in chapter 6, it says, uh, Flee from the midst of Babylon. Let everyone save his life. Be not cut off in her punishment. For this is the time of the Lord's vengeance, the repayment he is rendering her. Babylon was a golden cup in the Lord's hand, making all the earth drunken. The nations drank of her wine, therefore the nations went mad. Suddenly Babylon has fallen and been broken. Wail for her. Take balm for her pain. Perhaps she may be healed. We would have healed Babylon, but she was not healed. Forsake her and let us go each to his own country, for his judgment has reached up to heaven and has lifted, been lifted up even to the skies. The Lord has brought about our vindication. Come, let us declare in Zion the work of the Lord, our God. Uh, okay, this is what I wanted. It's, it's uh, Isaiah 21. Hey, can I borrow that pen again so I don't lead astray every other class I try to teach on Revelation? <laughs> Isaiah 21. Who writes 9? It's not even close to 21. What a a debacle. (laughs) All right. Um, This is in Isaiah 21. It says, I kind of like this. So we'll start in verse 6. For thus the Lord said to me, Go set a watchman. Let him announce what he sees. When he sees riders, horsemen in pairs, riders on donkeys, riders on camels, let him listen diligently, very diligently. Then he who saw cried out, Upon a watchtower I stand, O Lord, continually by day. And at my post I am stationed whole nights. And behold, there come riders, horsemen in pairs. And he answered, Fallen, fallen is Babylon. And all the carved images of her gods he has shattered to the ground. 
around. Um, why is Babylon falling here? Exactly. Same same premise, right? False gods. Okay, worshiping something that does not deserve to be worshipped, not following, uh, not worshiping the true God. Like this is basically God taking a stand against every false god or things that people worship that they should not. Um, which is the same thing we saw in the Exodus plagues. That's why the Exodus plagues kind of show up in the um, in the trumpet judgments, and they're going to show up in the bowls too. Same. It's always the same thing. God is a jealous God. He deserves worship. There are, he, people of His and uh, are being led astray. People that do not currently belong to Him have been led astray, and He is bringing up judgment upon the earth that is coupled with calls for repentance. Okay. All right, Fallen Falls Babylon Great, who made all nations drink the wine of the passion of her sexual immorality. What's interesting is that the way the Old Testament talks about this, it is that God made Babylon the cup. It is, it is an instrument through which God has done. The next three or four verses is really going to stretch how comfortable you are with God doing as he pleases. And one of them is the concept that he set Babylon to take his people out of the promised land. And as people were deceived by the wine of Babylon, basically the lifestyle that they brought about that pointed people away from, the God, from God, it is God who let Babylon do that, who caused them to be the wine of which the nations become drunk upon. That's coming from his hand. He is ultimately responsible for those things. That's happened from Exodus dawn. It's correct. It's correct. It's just, it's easy for us to be like, well, those evil people are causing people to go astray. God is putting responsibility fully on you for not for going astray. He is causing, through those actions, he's bringing you to judgment and hopefully repentance. But... It is at his hand that happens. Watch this. And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he will also drink the wine of God's wrath, poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. And the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast and its image, and whoever receives the mark of its name. That is, that is a harsh justice coming from the hand of God. And it's something we have to deal with. The, the, um, is, the wrath is poured full strength in the cup of his anger and tormented with fire and so forth in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. These are things that are happening overseen by the Lord Jesus. Yeah, but this has been known since Genesis 3.15 because the sacrifice they've done, Cain Abel did a sacrifice. But because Enoch followed God, he was taken away. And the Chinese had a similar sacrifice they did to the, um, the oh, that border border sacrifices. Uh-huh. Mm-hmm. And just, so through history, everybody's known that there's the one true living God. You do what He says, or you pay the price. Yeah, I agree. I agree. I think there's there's just and this is this is going to come up in the um, uh, in the bowls too. Is that we recognize that like these things that we don't necessarily want to think come from the hand of God are coming from the hand of God. There, there is a time for, for justice here because the truth is if there's, if there's not a recompense, if there's not a penalty or, or an impact of people's sin, then what did Christ do on the cross? There's nothing to be saved from. And there was no reason for his sacrifice. Now the truth is, if we look through Revelation, it is not God's people that are ever enacting any of this justice. But there is a time where God says... Like when the the saints are under the altar saying, when we'll be avenged, it will happen. God's wrath will be poured out on those who completely reject him. But notice, the the full time that we've seen things coupled with his wrath, if they're calls to repentance, and this is, again, this will show up uh, predominantly um, in the bowls, is it's going to be 
um, marks of wrath, wrath, wrath. They did not repent. They did not repent. They did not repent. Okay? People are getting what they asked for. They gave God the finger and God gave it back. <laughs> right? And so the, the truth is, is like, I, 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 um, I hesitate here because I've got all these things in my mind that says, what about the pygmy guy who I don't think has ever heard of Jesus? Or what about the guy who was really well-intentioned and somebody loved him and somebody, he was somebody's dad or that was somebody's mom or uncle and like they did good things in their lives or something or other. But the truth is, is that like these are people where God is demonstrating very clearly that he is God and he's being rejected. And then ultimately, this is the consequence. And the truth is, when you reject God, you're accepting the consequence that comes with that. I think what we have to keep in mind, though, too, is how how Revelation started out was with the letters to the churches. What were these churches doing or not doing to enact such... day and night, no rest and and torment and fire and and the presence and Mm -hmm. all of that. I think it's a good message. We're not out playing ISIS and we're still in jeopardy of going against, like, what team are you going to be on? What mark are you going to take? And so I think... I think there, I think there's something to be said for that too, because I think, and in, in especially where we live, we can get really complacent, yeah, in just doing the mediocre stuff halfway and and not really worrying about it and that kind of stuff. But this, this is legit. I mean, this might seem like a harsh penalty, yeah, but in the realm, it's not. So the choice that we're making has this gravity. Right, right. And I would agree that this is, this is primarily a message to the churches, right? This recognizes that, that this, this is our call, this is our call to action, right? That like if it, a part of our responsibility is, is, is playing in that reconciliation and to at least make sure people know the difference. If this is what they're going to choose, it is what they're going to choose. Um, but God has laid this out very clearly. And the truth is, is as, a, as a call to the churches is a sustain. I know where all this persecution is coming from. You're going to persevere. And if you notice, when we looked at, we had, uh, <clears throat> I have to keep going through these because I only know them order. Seals, trumpets, trumpets too. All right. During the trumpets, if we, the interlude message was, the interlude message on the seals was, even all these things are happening to you, you're protected spiritually. Okay? The second, when we look at the trumpets, the interlude was basically, it's when he's, when he's talking about um, the two witnesses and stuff, is that what are you supposed to do during all this? Was all this is going on? You're going to witness. It's the only time that people actually repent is when the church is witnessing, when the church is actually talking about the things that God is doing and, and are coupling that message with God's call to repentance. Okay? And then people do repent. And so uh, there's going to be an interlude as we come up upon the, um, upon the bowls and it's basically say, yeah, and that's lived out through your actions. And so these are still messages to the churches. It has an impact on those that aren't God's people. But like this is a message to the churches as we are, we are to be called to recognize that you're sealed. God is ultimately victorious. You, you will be avenged. Those who watched your brother Antipas die, who see the sacrifices that are going on around the world for people who love Jesus by people who don't. So don't worry. You will be avenged. But this is a message to you to recognize um, that is the witnessing church that starts to change this trajectory. Agreed. So uh, it says, following his battle, we got through that, remark on his forehead, he will drink the wine of God's wrath. It says he will be tor- tormented with fire and sulfur. Now, I don't, I don't think, again, based upon the, the language that's been in Revelation so far, I, we're probably not supposed to take this literally. Um, this is the same description. Well, I say that. This is the same description that happens in Sodom and Gomorrah. Okay? It was a judgment language. 
Okay? It is bringing judgment upon those people. Is this, do I, does it have to physically reflect what is going on at any point in time? I don't think so, because again, I think this is a description of what is always true. It is always true that people who are following Babylon and those who have chosen a kingdom that is not God's will fall on God's judgment. So This is just a description. This is just an adjective of they would know Sodom and Gomorrah's story. Correct, correct. They would, be, like, they, would, they would totally understand what fire and sulfur do. Yes. The ultimate result of it. Yes. Not necessarily the means, but... Yeah. Here's the result of what happens. Yeah. And I, and I say that not because that hasn't been something that has traditionally been linked to our understanding of what it means to be eternally separated from God. But the truth is he's used pretty symbolic language all the way throughout Revelation. I don't know why I would have to take suddenly say this is definitely a specific literal thing when most things have been symbolic. OK, so um, I, I'm not saying it doesn't it can't speak at all to what the situation is of someone who is eternally separated from Christ. I'm saying it doesn't have to. And frankly, the, with the path that, that that uh, revelation has taken, I'm saying it, in this section, at least specifically, I don't think it does. It doesn't seem likely. Okay? Um, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night. This is the same Greek um, phrasing that, um, that pretty much describes those who worship at the throne. Okay? So there is some eternality to it um, of eternal judgment separated from God, if basically that's what you've chosen. People get what they choose. Hey, I, I wish to, I, I don't want to live eternally with God. Okay, well then you're making the choice to live eternally separated from God. That was that was your option. That's what you chose to do. Um, but that is to the worshippers of the beast and its image, and those who receive the mark of its name, those who belong to the beast, and that's representative of anything basically that you worship that is sh- short of who the true God is. Okay. And I heard a voice, uh, oh sorry, here's a call for endurance of the saints, those who keep the commandments of God and their faith, faith in Jesus. Now the call for endurance here, this is how we persevere, and it's also what starts to change this trajectory. Again, calling us back to, that, um, to what goes on in the trumpets. Okay, um, we, per- we persevere because we keep the commandments of God and their faith in Jesus. Again, faith coupled with action. Okay, it means something. What you do matters. It matters in the context of other people. It matters in your context of your perseverance. And I heard a voice from heaven saying, Write this. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Blessed indeed, says the Spirit, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So interesting, it's another beatitude. We said there's seven beatitudes in Revelation. Okay, blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. This is another one. Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Uh, And the Spirit says, blessed indeed, that they may rest from their labors, for their deeds follow them. So the last part, kind of we get a conjunction here. Same thing. They rest from their labors, their deeds follow them. Through your perseverance, through the things that you've done things your actions reflected in where your faith is okay that is how you persevere and ultimately guide you to eternal rest with god okay whereas there's an active kind of um woe or justice that comes upon those who follow the beast our description of eternal uh, of eternity with god is one of worship and rest okay i don't know why people choose anything else i don't get it when you're, pla- you're yeah, placed with a sharp relief of what to do here yeah versus torment yeah you know well they believe the lie uh, which is why, which is why you have um, kind of your representative false prophets, right? To point you to the lie, to say this is worth worship, this is worth your attention, this is worth your time, this is worth your allegiance. Okay, that's where the false um, na- um, narrative comes from, um, and that's why I think he uses the word false prophet. Is is basically something or some entity or some being that points you away from where true worship belongs, and you bought into it. And ultimately, we know we have our unholy parody trinity of dragon 
two beasts, and all those things are kind of puppeted by the influence of a thrashing Satan who is otherwise bound, um, you know, wailing or trying to take vengeance upon the earth for what the earth has ultimately done to him and what those who follow Christ have ultimately done. All right. Um, Harvest of the earth. Then I looked, and behold, a white cloud, and seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. That takes us back to where? Stock answer. Jesus. It's Jesus, as otherwise represented in what Old Testament book? Son of man on a cloud. Oh. Daniel 7. Daniel 7. Very good. Stocky. I don't mean to overcommit this, but let's write it on your hand and foreheads. The other stock answer is going to be Daniel 7. Daniel 7. I, did, I missed that Jesus class. or Daniel 7? Daniel 7. Daniel 7. That's where we have this picture of one like a son of man on a cloud, okay? Yes. Receiving a kingdom, okay, and we have that. This carries that connotation. There is debate whether this angel is actually Jesus or it is one that seems to have the uh, attributes or authority of Jesus. We've seen that kind of through Revelation where people kind of seem like somebody with some that has the attributes of God, but it's obviously not God. Um, uh, I'm not sure I'm committed one way or the other as to whether this is Jesus or not, but like, it, we'll look at the actions of what's actually happening here. So it's seated on the cloud, one like a son of man with a golden crown on his head. Actually, I'll tell you, the ESV thinks it's not Jesus. That's why it is not capitalized son of man. Yes. Um, but you probably have, um, somebody may have a version of the Bible that has those capitalized because they would otherwise interpret it as Jesus. Um, all right, golden crown on his head, sharp sickle in his hand. He's going to do some work. And another angel came out of the temple, calling with a loud voice to him who sat on the cloud, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. Now, here's one of the, here's one of the arguments that we made that it's not Jesus. That angel just told him what to do. So you figure, uh, hey, go ahead, Jesus, it's okay to do the sickle. Now, I'm not sure that's all that compelling because it's obviously not the angel's authority who would be saying to do anything. Jesus said, even from earthly ministry, I do what the Father tells me to do. Angels bring messages on behalf of God. Very well could be God saying, hey, go ahead. Because, here's, here's what would make sense to me. Jesus wouldn't even know at the time. Correct. <laughs> if Jesus doesn't know the time. So he's, so God, God is, has to tell him, now's the time, go ahead. Jesus carried a sickle. <laughs> um, could be, could be. If, if I think this is the end of the world. I don't know. We'll see. All right. Um, Put in your sickle and reap, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is fully ripe. So he who sat on the cloud swung his sickle across the earth, and the earth was reaped. Then another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. And another angel came out from the altar, the angel who has authority over the fire. And he called with a loud voice to the one who had the sharp sickle, Put in your sickle and gather the clusters from the vine of the earth, for its grapes are ripe. So the angel swung his sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wine press of the wrath of God. And the wine press was trodden outside the city, and blood flowed from the wine press as high as a horse's bridle for sixteen thousand stadia. That is a gross image. Mm-hmm. That's violent. Okay, a uh, couple things to look at. So he, when the, he's called to put the sickle in, he harvests the earth. Uh, the earth was reaped. And then you see him picking up grapes. Let's look at Joel 3. Actually, I'll start from verse 9 because I like this. This is the Lord uh, really calling out the nations who are against him. Uh, Joel 3, verse 9. Proclaim this among the nations. Consecrate for war. Stir up the mighty men. Let all the men of war draw near. Let them come up. Beat your plowshares into swords and your pruning hooks into spears. Let the weak say, I am a warrior. Bring what you got. 
Hasten and come, all you surrounding nations, and gather yourselves there. Bring down your warriors, O Lord. Let the nations stir themselves up and come up to the valley of Jehoshaphat, for there I will sit to judge all the surrounding nations. Seems like the right context, right? 13. Put in a sickle, for the harvest is ripe. Go in, tread, for the winepress is full, the vats overflow, for their evil is great. Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near. In the valley of decision, the sun and the moon are darkened, and the stars withdraw their shining. The Lord roars from Zion and utters his voice from Jerusalem, and the heavens and earth quake, but the Lord is a refuge to his people and a stronghold to the people of Israel. I think we got some pretty strong judgment language in Joel, and that, I would call that a little bit coincidental. Too much for me to think that he's not—that's not what he's calling back to. Okay. Well, especially the moon and the stars and the. Yeah. That sounds like firm judgment, right? Right. Judgment time. Well, talking about the nation of Israel, right? Yep. We're talking about those are all symbolic language of the, the nation of Israel. Right? Well, it's definitely God's judgment. Um, throughout the Old Testament, it, it, it was on various nations. The temple stuff was the judgment upon, upon the temple or, or, or Israel. Okay. But like he, he used the same language in Ezekiel, and that's on uh, sure. different nations. Mm-hmm. There's also Egypt, that kind of stuff. So basically calls for God's judgment. Um, so I think, I think he's calling back to, to Joel. Now here's what's interesting. is if we look at both of those, um, what, here's what we want. Uh, and this goes to back to our some of our understanding of a rapture context. We want the first one to be, for the hour to reap has come, for the harvest either is fully ripe. So we sat in a cloud, swung a sickle, and the earth was reaped. Takes good. Okay? And then he comes up and he takes the grapes, takes bad, puts them in the wine press. Okay? That's what we want to think. That's, that's where... Yeah, but that's not how it reads. That's, the, that's exactly right. That's not how it reads. That's not the context of Joel either. Joel talks about both of those things in the context of God's judgment upon people. So, what do I think he's doing here? He's recapitulating. He's, he's using both of the images that Joel uses to otherwise describe God's judgment upon the earth. This is not a separate us uh, people of God, not people of God. It's not a reaping of, of goodness. No, it is not. Righteousness. It's a reaping of it's a full judgment. It's a full judgment. It's a full judgment, yeah. which makes sense in the context of Joel one. Our understanding we, when we talk about rapture stuff during the old time, the, old, um, the, the other class, end time stuff, like that would make sense too. We said there isn't that people come up uh, like God's people leave first, um, but also it's it's in the right context of Revelation fourteen. He's talking about the destruction upon the nations. Mm-hmm. He's talking about the judgment upon the earth. I don't. We're not inserting a. Here's what I do with other folks now except for God's people were told to persevere um, but that's it so I, I think that if it remains in context we're talking about um, two things that otherwise describe God's judgment upon them which makes sense again pulling back from Joel Joel 3 uh, so the angel swung a sickle across the earth and gathered the grape harvest of the earth and threw it into the great wine press of the wrath of God. Let's look at, so here's, here's what's interesting. He talks about the wine press outside the city. The blood flows from the wine press and it's high as a horse's bridle for 1,600 stadia. 1,600 stadia is called like 180 to 200 miles. Okay, High as a horse's bridle, Okay, top of their chest, 200 miles of blood. That's a fierce image. Now, John tones down where he's borrowing from, which is Isaiah 63. So let's uh, maybe cover the ears of the little ones. Let's uh, look at Isaiah 63. Um, This is long, but let's look... We'll just start in verse 1. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Who is this who comes from Edom in crimson garments from Basra? He who is splendid in his apparel, marching in the greatness of his strength. It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. That's God. Why is your apparel red and your garments like his who treads in the winepress? Listen to God's description here. I have trodden the winepress alone 
and from the people no one was with me. I trod them in my anger and trampled them in my wrath. Their lifeblood spattered on my garments and stained all my apparel. For the day of vengeance was excuse me, in my heart, and my year of redemption had come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled, but there was no one to uphold. So my own arm brought me salvation, and my wrath upheld me. I trampled down the peoples in my anger. I made them drunk in my wrath, and I poured out their lifeblood on the earth. That's what I'm saying. That is a, he's toned down bits of Isaiah 63, representing God's wrath upon the earth. Now, uh, lest we lose our context in Isaiah 63, watch what follows. I will recount the steadfast love of the Lord, the praises of the Lord according to all that the Lord has granted us and the great goodness to the house of Israel that he has granted them according to his compassion, according to the abundance of his steadfast love. Look, what he's, he's put two things together. His justice and his mercy. For he said, Surely they are my people, children who will not deal falsely. And he became the Savior. In all their affliction he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them. In his love and in his pity he redeemed them. He lifted them up and carried them all the days of old. Okay? Uh, now, it's going to follow about their rebellion. And frankly, they're going to do the thing that everyone else has done. Um, but that's how, how Isaiah has kind of coupled these things. The vengeance that comes upon them okay, for them rejecting him ultimately still calls to repentance okay so that's that's where i believe john is pulling from at the end of revelation 14 um is this kind of judgment that is otherwise due from god when it talks about 1600 stadia uh, we've got a couple options here we still haven't taken a number literally um so i think um you could think that uh, 1600 stadia is what four uh, four squared Four is a number of completion related to the earth, gets you 16, and then 1,000, which is a, uh, a complete number or a lot. Um, it could be that. I'm not sure it's even that complicated, though. Like, that's an outrageous number. 200 miles worth of blood up to a bridle. He could just be saying it's a whole heck of a lot. Okay? There was a lot. The consequence of those who have rebelled against them and God's wrath has been poured upon them has produced an excessive amount of lifeblood flowing from them. Yeah, okay. with the thousands, God's completeness. So it would be complete. Yeah. I'm, I'm not saying it's not. I'm just saying, like, um, there's a lot of symbolic numbers in here. It's definitely a symbolic number. It's just, you know, how you want to get there, I think, is certainly debatable. Okay. All right. Well, it's his property. Oh, no, that's, uh, that's correct. That's correct. Fifteen. That's right. Hey, hey, that's rough times. That's rough times. We, we, like the, we like the Jesus that just kind of loved the world and with the sign and the baptismal and all that stuff. Um, uh, and it's difficult. Uh, well, my, uh, my reformed folks are going to argue with me here, but like there's a couple of things that I, that, I, that I think I have to hold in, in tandem is I have trouble understanding God's love without choice, for one. Um, the, if I don't have the ability to choose him, I, I have trouble defining love. There's reformed arguments for that, but like, I think we have choices because I think it, you, to, it shows love to give you an option. Otherwise, you would just be robotic. The second thing would be is there would be no such thing. We would not have a concept of mercy if we did not have a concept of justice. You would be not saved from anything. Um, uh, if there was not a consequence to rebelling against God, then his mercy would, be, would have no weight to it. Um, There's no need for Christ. Yeah, there wouldn't be a need for him. Um, and it also, it, it would be a weird... Um, uh, our calls for to think back of all the great atrocities in history and say, yeah, there's no um, there's no justice for that. 
there's no justice for um, those who take the lives of another. There's no justice for those who treat children in abominable ways. There's no justice for those um, who, um, for their own worldly gain, trample on those who have nothing. And we say, and God is not a God who turns a blind eye to those things. The very things that we find as encouragement in Scripture, we have to recognize the other side of that, the consequence of that, is that there is justice that otherwise sets the wrongs right. And sometimes that's hard for us to digest. But here's, here's what, I need to, what I need to constantly be reminded of. I am not more merciful than Jesus. My heart does not long for people more than Christ does. And so to the extent that I see wrath or justice described within, the, within Scripture, I know that it comes from a place of where God, who loves people more than I love them. And so I, I certainly can be convinced, of, I can be blinded. I can be blinded to say, yeah, but, yeah, but they did these things, yeah, but maybe they don't deserve those things. And God is the right arbiter of those things. This, this, like we've said before, revelation among any other book will test your confidence, your belief, your faith that God is just and good. Because when I see his wrath poured out upon people, I want to say, yeah, but is that really necessary? Does it have to be this way? Does it have to be this long? Does it have to be this type? And the truth is, if I trust God to save me, if I trust His mercy upon my life, if I trust His encouragement that He is just, I have to also accept the fact that that comes, there's another side to that, where His justice is poured on, on those who deserve it. Well, just look at His death, the violent completeness of it. He paid for that. If you're not willing to accept the free gift of mercy and grace, then you deserve the other aspect of it. And I, I would say I personally struggle with that. I know that it's true. Oh yeah. I know that I know what what is is here is is true, um, but I and it, where I need it's it's not the it's the justice part I get. Um, I need to be reminded um, that God loves better than I love and more than I love, and it's His desire that all come to Him, and that if you end up that way is because you've chosen to. Um, and so that is something that I have to be, I have to remind how good God is in the when I'm faced with. His justice upon people. Because, here's what God has set us up for. The justice isn't mine. That's why I feel that way. I don't look at people in that way. Because that's not my gig. My gig is to love them. So, the, the thing is, I, I, I say I have to fight for that perspective, but it's not my perspective to have. That's why he does the justice and I don't. That's why he gets to take a life and I don't. That's why the violence that comes in, in Revelation comes at his, at his hand, never at mine. Is because that is not the perspective of which I was given. There was a time where Jesus, Jesus, we're following Christ in his earthly perspective, which is to love people into the kingdom of heaven, to help them be reconciled to God. There's a time in which that switch switches and the, the Lord Jesus will be the one that is the arbiter of that justice. That actually doesn't ever switch for me. I'm just the love people into heaven guy. That's my role in the kingdom. I stay faithful. I stay true. I stay blameless. And I otherwise try to love people into heaven. It is God's justice. So the truth is, I will probably always struggle with that because that's not my perspective. That is not what the Holy Spirit has given into me is to understand fully the nature and fullness of his justice. I probably can't, I don't get it. I won't know it to its depth because it's not my role. He has empowered me with my role, which is love and follow Jesus, call people in reconciliation to him. So that's, that's probably where, where that struggle comes from. And the truth is, I'll probably be 80 years old and have the same problem. It's not really a problem because I can otherwise say, I don't get this, but I know you do. I, don't, I have trouble with this, but you're still God and I know you have it under control. right? So that, that's the part where I have to turn over to God what is God's and stick to mind what he's given to me. Um, but so I guess I would say, and, and maybe this is something that, I'll, um, that I'm unwise in, but at the moment, the way that I see this is, is like, I struggle with some of this justice stuff, but I, I think it comes because that's, 
that's not my perspective. That's not mine to have. Mine is to recognize that God does correctly. He is just in regard in whatever he does. The reason I look at people in a way with a soft heart and with a desire for reconciliation is because that's what God has put in me. And he desires that same thing. It's just that he has a, he's able to have kind of this broader perspective of life. And I'm, I only get what I get. Um, and I'm blessed for that. Because I, the last thing I suppose I have a hard enough people at times spending time with people and trying to point them to the reconciliation of God. I don't know what I'd do if I had to deal with the justice business, right? That's why the guy, the Turner Burn guy, he's got the wrong. He's, he's doing the wrong thing. He's ta- he's putting God's thing in his sign. I like the Jesus loves you guy. He's not deep enough. We probably need to go. We need to actually introduce him to Jesus. But like I like that guy. He's left the right trajectory better. Yeah. There's a truth to the Turner Burn guy. I'm just saying it's God's truth, and he will understand that deeper than I will, and he will feel that differently than I will. Um, so I think that's where I'm at with that. I don't know. Maybe, maybe, maybe I go closer to Jesus. Maybe that changes. But as I sit right now, that's, that's how it feels to me. Fifteen. And I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. We're done. We're done on our recapitulations. Right? John has built us up. He said, it's, I'm going to bring you up to the end, and then we're going to back. I'm going to bring you up to the end, and we're going to come back. Um, this is going to be our last recapitulation. But this is going to end in chapter 17, and, uh, excuse me, chapter 16. And then uh, we still got some more chapters in Revelation. So even that's not the end of the world. Okay? Um, but he, this is the last time he's going to tell, that, tell the story. All right. Which are the last, and for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. All right. Um... A lot of this, I think, we've, we've kind of touched on another. So we have, we're set up with seven angels. We have seven more plagues. This is going to be the end of them. We see the sea of glass mingled with fire. So that brings up two different images for me. You guys have any thoughts about what those might be talking about? Well, the sea of glass is oh, it's always represents Jesus in control. If it's the sea of turmoil, Satan's in charge of doing that thing. Yeah, so we said, we said uh, evil and chaos come from the sea. Our, we've seen the sea of glass already. Where was it at in Revelation? Yeah, it was at the throne. It was in the throne room, at the throne room of God, where if the sea represents evil and chaos, it is at the throne room of God where it is quelled, okay? where it is calm. Okay? Um, but also under God's control. Also, um, sea, water mixed with fire. Biblical perspective, where have we seen that before? I'm going to say class two. <laughs> I'm giving two points for Daniel 7, even though it's not the right answer. I wasn't paying attention. That's okay. So, so um, don't think, don't think sea and fire. Think water and fire. Perhaps frozen water and fire. Maybe even hail and fire. Maybe even exodus plagues. <laughs> okay. Very good. <laughs> okay. So I, I, think, I think that's relevant here um, because we're going to see some more of that. We're going to see some more Exodus Plague references here. Um, and I don't think that concept is gone again. It's um, Exodus Plague's judgment upon the nation calls to repentance for the leader of Egypt, ultimately so that God's people are free to worship. 
which is going to be interesting. Like, what did we just see? We have uh, appear to be a sea glass mingled with fire. Those who would conquer the beast and its image and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God. And then what are they going to do? They're going to worship. Okay, so I don't think that Exodus context still hasn't left. This is kind of a new Exodus. Okay, the redemption of God's people to be able to worship the true God as they see fit. All right, um, let's see the song. Uh, say the, it says the uh, song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb. So there is a song of Moses um, in Deuteronomy 32, I think. Yeah, so this is where Joshua is going to succeed Moses. Um, and then Moses kind of speaks um, the words of this song to everybody before um, they kind of head on to the promised land. He says, Give ear, O heavens, and I will speak, and let the earth hear the words of my mouth. May my teaching drop as the rain, my speech distill as the dew, like gentle rain upon the tender grass, and like showers upon the herb. For I will proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. The rock, his work is perfect. For all his ways are justice, or just, a God of faithfulness and without iniquity. Just and upright is he. They have dealt corruptly with him. They are no longer his children because they are blemished. They are a crooked and twisted generation. Do you thus repay the Lord, you foolish and senseless people? Is not he your father who created you, who made you and established you? Remember the days of old. Consider the years of many generations. Ask your father and he will show you. Your elders and they will tell you. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, he fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God, but the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob, his allotted heritage. This is a lot, uh, this is a lot longer. It'd actually be, um, I would recommend reading that, but we probably don't have, we don't have time to do it tonight. Um, So there is a song of Moses, but it's a, um, it's a new song, right? The song of the lamb. This becomes the new song. It says, great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God, the almighty. Just and true are your ways. Kind of um, brings back, brings us back to Deuteronomy 32. O king of the nation, who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name. What does that sound like? If we had, if, if I said there was a, if there, we think there's a parody going on from one of the beasts. Do you guys remember one of the questions that was going on with the beast that kind of sounds like this? So it's on um, Revelation 13, and it says, And they worshipped the dragon, well, this is the dragon, and they worshipped the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Okay? So if, if our parody is, you're worshipping the lesser thing, okay? Now go back. We have the same, similar question showing up in the description of God. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. What's the call? The call to them is because of your righteous acts. What does it follow? His justice. And the nations will come and worship you. That's the call. It's still a call to repentance. Still a call to repentance. After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. So we're about to, we're running into our last recapitulation here of sevens. Um, You know what's kind of interesting, and I'm not I'm not certain of this, but let's, it may be interacting with the Roman Empire a little bit here. Um, it says, I looked in the sanctuary of the tent of witness, and heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels. So there was the temple of Janus in Rome, and basically during times of war, the temple doors would be opened. 
Okay, and then whenever there were times of peace, they would close the temple doors. A big ceremony thing. They would, it's, it's a lot of times when they would do the Roman triumphs, they would then come in and close the doors of the Temple of Janus to say peace has been attained. And then when something else were to happen, they would open the doors. Now a lot of that was symbolic. Rome was at war almost all the time. I think they were just, you're just doing it to put on a show. But the particular point was, is that where we were at war, we are now at peace because of what has been conquered. And so is it possible that you have a little bit of that interaction here where we're talking about heavenly doors or, or temple doors are opening and now there's, there's a war of sorts going on. It's possible. It's possible that there's an interaction kind of with that practice here. I wouldn't, again, I wouldn't uh, put it on the desk calendar or anything. All right. How are we doing? All right. Let's, go, let's um, get a little bit into, into 16 and we'll see how far we go. Um, then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels. You notice, how, you notice how Revelations got a lot louder? It got a lot louder. Like stuff was real quiet. Right in the beginning of Revelation. And then, like, you got halfway through, and now people are yelling all the time. They're calling people to stuff. <laughs> Every time there's an interlude, someone's screaming out something else. Revelation is slowly, like, escalating in its noise level of everything that's going on. So then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. So the first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the earth, and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Harmful, painful sores. Sounds like Exodus. Yeah, yeah. Sounds like an Exodus plague, right? Okay. Um, who did it? Who was it on, though? Here it says, came upon the people who bore the mark of the beast and worshipped its image. Like the Exodus plagues, it skips the people of God. Okay. It was the same thing happened there too. Okay. It would send it upon Egypt. Okay. Except for the um, except for the final one uh, where they have to put the blood above the door. But even then, it skips the people of God. Except for they they had they had to put the blood uh, a seal, a mark on the people of God so that the plagues don't get them. Huh? Makes sense. Kind of all the time. What was the Same stuff. Be the kind of like, drama of a play mm-hmm. that farther you get into it, farther you get to the completion, the excitement, and the, the just everything is building. It's interesting you say that. There's a guy named John Smalley who wrote a, com- uh, a commentary on Revelation, and his whole premise is breaking it down as if it's a play. Act one, act two, act three, watching how characters come in and out, um, how they interact with each other. Um, and he talks about um, something very similar to that. Um, as a matter of fact, most of the time when people are trying to digest Revelation, and I think I might have said this in our first class, is they tend to try to cast it in some art form. Talk about Revelation as a song. Um, there's a guy that wrote, um, uh, Robert Lowry wrote a book called Revelation's Rhapsody. It's very good um, talking about, um, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not like a commentary. It's, it's um, overview, helps you understand symbols and stuff. Um, in fact, I quoted some of that stuff in your pamphlets. Or pamphlets, like I'm shilling you, putting stuff on your windshield, and while you're at the Walmart. Um, anyway, so his called Revelations Rhapsody. He talks about a song. Um, Smalley wrote a commentary, and he talks about it as a play. Um, there's uh, another guy who does it as like it's a painting, like looking at the different um, textures and characters of Revelations, a painting. And again, it's an attempt to digest something that just simply isn't like we normally digest things. So you you're di- trying to take it in in this abstract format of art um, because it kind of flows like that, and you. Have have all these interactions where um, there's always John uh, where he's saying and I saw and then he hears something and he's like his, his, he's looking at all these different places and there's, there's noise going on and there's different textures and there's, there's smoke and there's like all this it's a very interactive thing where it's not just I read it and I understand it. it's not technical like that at all even though we've kind of spent a long time trying to we're trying to digest these um, these images um, but they're artistic images that God is using as opposed to just these technical passing on information types of things. So uh, that's, a, that's a good observation, Dan. Well, I just see Jesus' his life here on when he was here, the drama that he did, everything he 
brought to a max or crescendo what I was trying to think of the word. Yeah, oh yeah. Yeah, just to get the point across. So yeah. Really, Harold the Pharisees. He just brings it to that point. Right, right. The crescendo of revelation. I like that, Dan, because... Yeah, it took me a while to remember that word. <laughs> I don't think I spelled it right. <laughs> Uh, okay, so the second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. Sounds like? Plague. Yeah, really, right? Oh. Now, it turns, now it turns into blood. Exactly. Exodus plague. Same thing. I kind of like the, became like the blood of a corpse. Like, it, what's the guy's dead? He's not. It's really hard. Yeah, really good. I mean, I. I uh, but you think so? Like, it's like congealed? Is that what you're saying? Yeah, congealed. Well, that makes that grosser. What do you say? Coagulated. Yeah, oh yeah, okay, yeah, yeah. Okay. Pudding. Uh, well, man, I shouldn't have asked. I shouldn't have delved into that one any further. That's gross. I like gross. Okay. I mean, we've gone from rivers of a wine press of blood up to the horse's bridle to like a coagulated really mess of stuff. It's kind of <laughs> God's like, you know what? They're not going to understand these things unless I make the, I mean, you need to get the depths of this plague that I'm talking about here. Coagulated blood. Yeah. Put that on your calendar. All right. Third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and the springs of water and they became blood and I heard the angel in charge of the water say check this out just are you O holy one who is and who was and we said it's missing the third one because he has done it he has come he is he is traditionally we hear him saying who is and was and is to come and now this is the second time we've seen who is and who was because he's here Right? There's no reason to say who is to come. He's, he's shown up. Uh, for, um, just, just are you a holy one who is, uh, who is and who was for or because you brought these judgments. You are just because of these judgments you've brought. For they have shed the blood of saints and prophets and you have given them blood to drink. It is what they deserve. It is what they deserve. Um, Again, it brings me back like uh, that image of the of the guys under the under the altar kind of carries throughout all of Revelation. Um, it's like it's it's kind of what they've been calling for, and now you you kind of see it showing up in part of his what he's pouring out because they have shed the blood of saints and prophets, and you have given them blood to drink. Okay, because of what you've done to 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 your people, because of what they've done, you have conversely given them blood to drink, um, and th- we saw that um, the cup of the wrath of Babylon. It's the same concept. Okay. They basically got what they was coming to, and now they're going to choke on it. Okay? And ultimately, it will cause their death. And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God the Almighty, true and just, all your judgments. There they are. There they are. It's what they were asking for. And God says, You wait. And now you've waited long enough. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. Now, what's interesting here is that means they knew it. Doesn't it? Yes. Doesn't mean that they knew it. If you're going to curse God because of the plague, it means you know where they're coming from. Right. They did not repent and give him glory. They had a chance. They knew where it was coming from, and they refused. They hardened their hearts. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdoms kingdom, excuse me, was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. <laughs> cursed God because they knew it. They did not repent of their deeds. So one of the things that I think, if this buffers at all, uh, not that it needs to, but like if it helps me understand, I guess, some of the stuff that we read in 14 and 15, um, is that this is not a people who does not know that these, that these come from the hand of God. They know who it came from. They curse him because of the circumstance. 
and they refuse to repent. That's a hardened heart. That's a hardened heart. That's what Richard did. Correct. I, here's and here's the thing, and this is, this is um, and I'll try to stay off a tangent here, but like. I, this this uh, revelation puts this on them. They did not repent. God demonstrated who he was. They did not repent. In Egypt, I, I don't think there's any getting around that God actually hardened Pharaoh's heart. He did that. He's, he's capable of it. Um, there are other times in Scripture where they're like, he simply will step into people's lives if he wants to, and um, God has taken actions upon people. He is sovereign. He'll do as he pleases. In general, I believe his trajectory is uh, that people have the opportunity to choose. But like, we're probably overselling the case if, to make it sound like God has not just made someone do something. <laughs> I think he has. I think, I think scripture is pretty clear that he has. Um, and to the same way that as being a guy that believes that we have the choice to make, um, um, I think that sits in the same boat as me saying, I have to trust that when he otherwise will step in his creation and will make somebody do something that's within his realm to do, just like his justice and wrath is good, um, even if I don't have the, a great perspective on it or if I struggle with it, it'll be the same thing as if he steps into somebody's life like it's... It's his show. Um, and the only reason, frankly, the only reason that I don't just hand it all over and say everybody's a puppet and everybody does everything and that God is orchestrating it all, is because frankly, I, can't, I don't think that's Scripture's trajectory. Um, there's just too much choice in there. Um, but it doesn't mean that I can't commit fully and say that everything has always been everybody's choice. I think there's just certain things in Scripture that he stepped in and done. And I think um, Pharaoh had rejected God on his own a few times. God hardened him a few more um, so that he may demonstrate uh, to all people uh, as he is. He goes up against those Egyptian gods with the specific plagues um, so that he could basically accomplish what he wanted to accomplish, and I think he does. Here, um, he, he hands it, Revelation hands it to the people. They did not repent. God did not harden their hearts. They simply didn't do it. So, Well, even as a Christ follower, if I don't do what Jesus wants me to do, he will use me to get it done. I just don't get the blessing. Uh, yeah, well, I, I think that's broadly true. I think here's the thing: is, is that God will accomplish what like I cannot. There's nothing for me that will make it so God doesn't accomplish what He wants accomplished. I just think that's not that's not going to happen. Um, in fact, it's interesting. We talk about this when we talk about the destruction of the temple stuff. We're like, um, um, we have to go to the ends of the earth. And so one of our missionary principles is, as a Western church is that we need to make sure we get to the corners of uh, Madagascar and Zimbabwe because if we don't tell anybody, the Lord won't return. Well, I, like, I feel like God will do as he pleases. He's not waiting on our ability to get a ship together and a few hundred bucks and send somebody over. Um, and frankly, I don't, that wasn't the right context of the verse anyway. Um, but do, from a different perspective... Um, if God wants every is wants everyone to be um, to be part of His kingdom, I feel like He'll use whatever means are necessary to accomplish such a thing, or to give the the people the option where they will see clearly and could repent and either don't or do. Well, He knows the hearts of men, so yeah. He's going to use people to get things done. Yeah, Judas. Yeah, exactly. Well, right, a... Judas still had a choice, yeah. but. Well, he might there he knew he that's the way he was going to go. Yeah. You know, so, all right, well, if that's the way you're going to go, then here's where I need you to go. The Babylonians, they weren't like, okay, God, tell us what to do. Right, you know? right. God used them. God, God used them. God used them. God knew yeah, what they were about. Yeah, yep. so. knew what they were about. <laughs> right. He allowed, right God allowed Satan to inter- intervene in Job's life. And here's the thing. I have to, I have to get on board with that. 
God and it was 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 God glorified through the work of Job? Absolutely. Um, did it result in, in ultimate blessings for Job? I say yeah, but sometimes we over celebrate that. Like the guy still lost all his kids. Like everything. Yeah. Start over. I mean, I get that he rebuilt, but I mean, seriously, I don't. You know, you could give me three more kids than the three that I got. I feel like I'm still going to miss the three that you took. Yeah. yeah. Right. I think it's well, it's true. Yeah. True. And that's and that's the broad perspective, right? That that's where like I can live and I can understand things on earth plane where revelation kind of gives us this we get to see things from god's perspective a bit and so then i'm reminded hey man if god took kids then god took kids <laughs> bless them i'm sure they're not i'm sure they're not struggling over the concept like i am right, right? and so again if it's if, if where um sometimes we're, we're a little bit too soft i think on what we believe um the, the things that i have to agree with aren't necessarily easy things mm-hmm. um and the things from an earthly perspective that i have to struggle with and so when i read revelation i start from the premise that says i believe all this now you help me with my unbelief help me where I'm where I'm missing the right aspect of your character where I misunderstand this or where I struggled to say to try to convince someone no God would never make you do something well I feel like he does I feel like he does is that is that his broad way of handling things I don't think that's the way scripture lays out but like certainly he has God intervening in people's lives and doing things that were not of their free will and so you know if I'm going to take that as true and then say God I need you to help me I need you to help me understand this what about your character am I missing that this is a problem for me and help me reconcile help me fix it what I think so that I may understand you deeper it's all about knowing who God is and trusting in him Um, but like we're probably doing ourselves a disservice to sometimes act like um our answers are either too easy or they're too light. Well, um, it's something bad happened in the world, um, you know, but, but God, God wasn't uh, behind that. Well, here's the thing. God certainly permitted it. He had to have. Is he God or is he not? Mm-hmm. He's permitted it. I, we can't just be like, he didn't permit it. Um, Revelation helps us with the broader picture. Right. This, this may be a call to repentance to you. The things that we find the most abhorrent may be calls to repentance. Maybe he loves you enough to let you suffer something on earth so that people may repent. Yeah, help me with my unbelief here. I still struggle with that. We talked about that a little bit last week and a little bit the week before. Um, but that's me trying to be reconciled to what God's actual character is. But let's at least be honest. We don't need to platitude our way to a holy living God. I, I think we, we get on knees and we do sackcloth and we say, help me get it. I want to get it. And that's, that, I think, is a place where we actually end up following Jesus because we say, I'm willing, I got everything on the table. And if you say that that is what it is, then I say it's true and I want to conform to whatever that is. And that is a, that's a hard deal. But that's where we, it's hard because I need to strip away my stuff, the stuff that I want to be true, the stuff that I want, I want people to sell God to somebody. So I say, these are the things that I want you to know about God when I have to accept a. We don't want to scare anybody. Yeah, I don't want to freak you out, man. away from the kingdom. Right, right. And, that's, and, they don't, and here's the deal. If we pull that you stuff away... well aware of what you're signing up for here. Right. It's if, not just, you know, the cushy tree-hugging love stuff. True. And here's the thing. If we pull that stuff away, if we pull some of those characteristics of who God is away, then we've, we're simply saying, I'm embarrassed of parts of Jesus. And I don't, that's not, I don't want that. Now, do they need to understand it in right perspective? Sure, because the truth is we could go back and we could look at Revelation 16 and start there and only give somebody that. And all the, thing, the only thing that I've hoped to do is scare the crap out of somebody. Well, great, you've not actually met Jesus either. Because you're not, we're not talking about the depths of his love and his mercy from these very things that you're afraid of, right? So we need whole Jesus, and that takes time, and that takes relationship, and that takes community. And we're not going to pamphlet a guy into heaven because he didn't actually meet Jesus. And if Jesus is the only guy that's allowed in, you meet Jesus, you know him, you follow him in, you say, he's the only reason I got into the party. And then we know Jesus right, but all aspects of him. 
And Revelations will confront us with that. We're going to have to deal with those types of things. Yeah, but we can go we can go soft on one side though and just pick and choose love Jesus. Right. You know, we see society doing that all the time. Yeah. Not calling sin sin and not, you know, acknowledging his his right to be just. Yeah. You know, and our our submission yeah. to it. And it's not weakness, it's it's submission in in awe right. and, and honor. It's not weakness. Right. Agreed. And so until we start kind of having some of those conversations, I, I think there's some mega churches that are going down the wrong road. I think there's I think that's there's a lot of people that that are are missing it. Yeah, we, we don't have um, I don't I'm not sure that we should ever I mean here's it's all good like it's good news it's still good news right like we still share good news um, but here's the thing if I want someone to understand the full character of God I'm going to take my giant Bible and I'm just going to drop it on their car and say here you go this is what it is I, I cannot communicate to you the holy just loving righteous just God justice of God um, in, in a pamphlet so how do, how do I actually do that go ahead did I just hear you say that we should put whole Bibles on that's what I'm saying if you're going to do anything if you're going to, like, no tracks or anything, if you're going to do anything, you just hand out Bibles on top of Volvos. That's what solves problems. <laughs> I think it would. I think it would. Um, Under their wiper blade. There <laughs> you go. I thought you might need this. As part of Jesus, he's also our king. He's our savior and king. Mm-hmm. He has to be king. And as a king, he can do what he wants, mm-hmm. any way he wants, and we fall. And it is painful. It can be painful. I think it's it's the process. Have you guys um, have you guys read, anybody read any of the Chronicles of Narnia? Oh yeah. So there's a um, there's a, there's a part of that where Eustace, who's been turned into a dragon because he's gotten into some dragon gold uh, as a little boy, and uh, he turns into a dragon because you're not supposed to jack with dragon gold. <laughs> so he, he turns into a dragon, and uh, he's been kind of a real pain in the butt. This guy, real annoying little kid, and uh, all of a sudden he he like comes to this thing. Um, where he starts to kind of repent of his stuff and he has this encounter with Aslan who's like the Christ he's like a Jesus type figure in this thing and, uh, and basically he's the one that's capable of turning him back into his true form of who he's supposed to be and, uh, and so you, you get this picture of, of, of this Aslan figure this lion and he says uh, okay I can do this for you and he, he, there's like a, a baptism moment and, and the lion just starts scraping at him like tearing scales away from this dragon. And, and he's like, this hurts. He's always like, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it does. But it's, it's this purifying moment where the lion like scrapes all the scales and the skin and the falseness about him. And ultimately, he, he gets restored back to who he's actually created to be. Um, and he's reborn. It's like a rebirth story. It's very cool. And it's a very cool picture of what this looks like, kind of echoing what you were talking about, Dan, is like um, it's a process that's not intended to be painful. But what it is is is, is God slowly stripping away all these things that have made me not the me that I was designed to be. Right. And so sometimes I have to give up what I value versus what God values. And it's going to hurt as he kind of drags it away from me. Um, but ultimately, it's going to reveal like this true creation, this 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 virgin of a creation of which we can stand blameless in front of God because he's solely saying, you know what? I didn't put that there. I'm going to rip that away from you. And it's a little painful. But the only reason we mourn it is because our identity was all mixed up in it, which wasn't the thing that God gave us to begin with. So the more that I submit to the actual identity that God has given 
forgiven me and say, God, I'm willing, anything is on the table for you to strip those things away and come back to exactly what you created me to be, then I don't have to mourn those things. But where they're painful, and, it's, and don't hear me wrong, these are painful in my life because God takes something from me that I like that I value and I say this is this is part of who I am God this is part of my character and I really dig this about myself and he says no I'm sorry that is not what I created you to be you're going to mourn that and this is going to hurt but at some point it stops hurting because every every time those things pull away and God has taken that part of our identity from us he said we we kiss it goodbye and we say good riddance keep taking Make, make me in the mold. Help me to follow Christ and conform to his image. And then I'm more of what I've ever created to be. And such a beautiful picture. And like, he, he got that image is so cool in that book uh, about that. And so um, it's, it's part of that. It's painful. But like, there's a point where we stop mourning those things. And I can recognize and I can watch them go and I can celebrate that God has taken them. And know that he's refined me back to something that he's originally created. And that original creation, if you remember back to the, to the Garden of Eden, is where God is walking with them in the cool of the day. And I think like that's what I'm being drawn back to is that pure creation of which God walks among um, and provides for. And like it's just a really and, and revelation will take us back to that garden image. Um, but you're right. It, it is painful. But like we just our broader perspectives that we can see where that's actually going, what that actually is leading to. Um, and so what, what I was going to say, though, was is that so one of the things I think we have to recognize then is like short of dropping a Bible in someone's car who's probably not going to read it. Um, the way that we actually help people with this deeper understanding of Christ is one to pursue it ourselves, which is what we're doing. It's what I'm doing here. And I thank you guys for coming along with me. That's what I'm doing here. Um, and two is, is through our witness, is through our relationship with people, is, is showing them our lives because the truth is your life will tell uh, a story that will then be echoed in Scripture, right? And then it, it, crea- it creates a desire to say, I want to know where that comes from because the truth is I could throw Bibles at Volvos. I could. And it, it, actually, that sounds pretty fun and it sounds like a cool thing. But the truth is they're not going to read it. They're not going to read it. But if you run into a Christian and there's something about their, about their lives, not because, they're, um, not because there's something physical about their lives, because that's not where our protection is, but their spirit is joyful, right? Those fruits of the spirit really shine out and someone says, I don't, I don't know where that's coming from, but boy, I, I would like to know more. What about this, this Bible that you hold in my hand produces a knowledge and understanding and being part of a kingdom of God of which then has that in your life. And then you know what? They'll read the Bible on their own. I don't got to throw it at them or tie it to their car. Like, I'm here because I want to know a God that produces that in people. And the thing, that's not false. Sometimes we get this impression that, like, because I have joy in my life, well, like, that's selling a false principle. No, it isn't. That's a fruit of the Spirit. These are fruits of the Spirit, okay? These are demonstrable things that come from a life of a Christian which someone says, I want to know a God more. And sometimes those don't get people's attention, so he does wrath stuff. Okay, but it's it's our witness that otherwise brings that out in people, and then says, "All right, if that's the God, I want to know that God fully, and then I can at least digest some of these things and say I can get them in the right perspective, and I understand a holy God, and that's ultimately what they're submitting to." But the truth is, a lot of people aren't picking up their Bible because there's nothing about a Christian life, especially in a Western culture, that says, "Oh yeah, I need to dig in on more on that." And it's not because we're promising them those false worldly things, but they're things that everyone wants. The desires, those fruits of the Spirit, are things. Everybody is trying to get, they're just trying to get it from false gods. They're trying to get it from false governments. They're trying to get it from false prophets. They're trying to, to th- see these things that are not God. They're 666s. They're things that aren't quite what God is. And they want to worship those things hoping they produce the very thing that God promises. And it comes with everything that God shows.
And so that's where our, our, the witness of Christ's church is intermingled through all of this, because that's all that is revealed. And if I can't just throw revelation at a guy or a Bible at a guy, but hopefully my life can be a, a proclamation of who God is and what he desires and what he wants from his people. And then as I pursue Christ, other people want to pursue Christ with me. Follow me as I follow Jesus. That's Paul. That's us. It really simplifies our discipleship. There's a lot of ways that we think of like discipleship programs, right? Follow me as I follow Christ. That's your basically basic discipleship program. So all that's kind of interwoven in all these things that are going on uh, in Revelation. Let's see. I heard it. So altar, that was the answer. Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgment. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun. We talked about that. Cursed the name of God. They did not repent. We talk about verse five. They did not repent. Sixth angel. Po- oh, I have a question. So, yep. I mean, at what point is it too late for them to repent? Like, is there a point where it's like... Just before you die. I don't think it's not a point. Like, I think it's just, you always got a chance as long as you breathe. <laughs> well, saying that they did not repent kind of means that they had That they could. Right. right. So they you still could have. They still could. They did not repent. Yet, that just leads me Regardless. to believe that there's still an option. Right. Like, because I was thinking, okay, so... Uh, so you see the fire and you're getting burnt. I mean, do you, can you? <laughs> so it, it seems like you can. It seems like you so, can. Which is one of the things that makes me feel like this isn't the end of the world, right? Like it, we, it, it yeah. still sounds like it, right? But like these seems God's constant judgment on humanity of which you see God's hand at work in things that should otherwise make you feel small and you, you instead give God the fist and say, no, I'm not going to repent. So that, that's one of those things where I think all, a lot of these things that sound like the end of the world are probably rightly understood as consistent ways in which God interacts with his world in judgment because it seems like they still have a chance to repent. So as opposed to, I think you have two ways to go with that. We say either this is the end of the world and we, now we have some kind of ambiguous understanding of when you, what repentance looks like and when it can be done or if we look at this on our broader plane of revelation and say these are constant truths throughout time um, people always have the opportunity to repent in light of God interact with them calling them back to repent through his judgment upon the world um, even, even and, and here's the thing this puts a lot of weird things on the table because it makes me think like I mean, is every is a hurricane God's judgment to call people repentance? Here's the deal. Part of what I believe would put that on the table. <laughs> I'm not sure it is. Um, and there's a lot of jacked up theology that goes with people like talking about that. So, so that, this is where I'm trying to be careful here. But like anything that, that otherwise puts your humanity in the right focus and makes you feel a little bit smaller and makes you possibly cry out to a living God. Is it possible that God's hand is in that? Uh, maybe. Maybe it is. I think like that too. Like he's in the assignment. I mean, I don't know. Just bringing what's the word I'm looking for? Notice to that area. Yeah. Somebody in that area. I think everything is coming. It's possible. And so, like, where I want to be careful is, like, the truth is most of the people that are saying that, of course, I want to think that I'm the responsible guy that says that, right? But most of the people are saying that are like, hey, that hurricane hit Florida because I hate the sin of a particular person and he's after them because of that. Okay, that's pompous and arrogant. Okay? It's not likely what it is. So that, 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 keep me out of the league of those guys. I'm not the, oh, well, I think, there's a lot of, uh, I think there's a lot of homosexuals in Florida, so I think that's probably why he sent the hurricane. Shut up. Shut up. Quit loving your sin more than you love somebody else's sin. Now, is it, could, is it possible that it's a broad call of repentance in the area? I think so. Is it weird that there's not a place where you can avoid a natural disaster? Well, Find a place on the earth where something ain't coming for you. I don't think so. We're saying Katrina was to try to wipe out voodoo. Here's the thing. Voodoo's been everywhere. Voodoo's everywhere. Yeah. Down there, it, it's 
legit. Yeah. It's practiced, it's open, yeah. it's all that. You know, they said the same thing about um, about uh, yeah, Haiti. the big tsunami hit um, Japan and, you know, all those types of things. You, yeah. you look at this going back to the repentance kind of thing. They were scorched by the fierce heat and they cursed the name of God knowingly, mm -hmm. right? But yet they didn't replant and give him glory. So that just leads me to believe you can be scorched and cursing the name of God and you still are afforded the opportunity yeah. to get right. I know that it's him. And yeah. I know that it's him. I, I won't ever drink again. God, you get me out of this and I will never drink another beer as long as I live. Or Until next week. <laughs> right? Until the next time. Yeah. Or... You know that just is how it's resonating with me right now. Yeah. So I I, I think this these one hits and, and still did and this one hits yep. and this and still and this one and, and it just keeps getting more and more and more as sin happens to do, right? A little bit and a little bit more, a little bit darker, a little bit deeper, a little bit worse. You know, and those types of things, and then it just kind of snowballs. But yet there's still this opportunity here. Yeah. So. So yeah, I think we probably should look at them as um, kind of reactions throughout time. Um, I'm still working through the how much of that stuff is God's implicit hand. So just know that I'm like walking that line. Like I, I feel like it's on the table. I don't know how it can't be. Um, I'm just not sure how far to understand that. So that's where I'm at with that. And if you guys haven't come across anything that you think would help me understand that better, I'm certainly open. But like, I, I would tell you like five years ago, that was completely off the table. I'm like, no, I'm kind of not sending a hurricane somewhere. But like, I, you know, I don't know if he has to interact with humanity in one way or another to kind of, I don't know, everyone hides under the power of natural disasters. So like, if it's something that calls people to repentance, which it tends to do, um, I, I just can't take it off the table. I just don't know. I'm not quite sure exactly how to digest that. So. Did you have something else, Sarah? Okay. It's crazy. There. I mean, it sounds horrible. They're gnawing, gnawing their tongues in anguish, and they have pain and sores, but they're just so hardened. They still refuse to. Yeah. Right. I mean, it seemed like you would rather that happen than what really should happen to you. Right. Like, I mean, I'd rather get hit with a scorpion for six months and still have a chance for eternal life. Right. And so, and I guess, like, if we have to put that in some practical terms, um, if these were all symbolic images, right, of like God kind of trying to interact with people to call them to repentance, um, what is it they, that they're so invested in? It's their own authority, right? Like, if I the things that I wish to worship, right? If I if if, if I'm saying everything has to be on the table, if I'm going to follow Jesus, everything's on the table, and it's simply someone saying. I don't want everything on the table. I don't want you to take my money. I don't want you to take my comfort. I don't want you to take my whatever. Whatever is it that you value, the false gods, the false worship. Like, we may not be erecting wooden statues uh, in our houses anymore, but we may be, you know, heartily checking the bank statement when it comes in and giving that a little bit of worship. You know what I'm saying? Like, what am I, what do I, am I not willing to put on the table for you? And so, it's, it's, those are the, those are the false things that I think are taking us away from God. It's not as, um, it seems like maybe people, because they, frankly, most of them didn't have money like they were they're willing to 
worship things that we'd easily pick out as idols, um, the things that they would put their faith in to save them. Like, we've kind of moved on from that. We're smart, enlightenment folks. We take care of our own stuff. Great, congratulations. You've got a mirror in your house. That's what you're worshiping. And so anytime you've got something that's not on the table that says, no, God, you most definitely can't have this, that's you saying, no, I refuse to repent. (laughs) I, I won't give this over to you. And so um, th- that's probably the more tangible terms of people refusing to turn to God is they'll say, I'll put up with the afflictions that my money has given me, my selfishness has given me. I have trouble with, um, uh, I don't have good connections. I don't have true joy in my life. I can't seem to keep a spouse. I'm on number five um, because of the things that I worship. But no, I refuse to give up those things. These are my sores. Um, but no, I will not repent because of this thing that I love. So there's some tangible impact. And again, from, again, from our perspective, a purely uh, American, probably Western culture perspective, um, ours tends to come from blindness. We don't realize we worship money. We don't realize we worship contentment. We don't realize that we worship our own safety and the safety of our loved ones. Okay? But these are things that I do worship. These are things that, that when, when push comes to shove, I'd probably take a bullet for Christ. But if someone puts a gun to my daughter's head, maybe I struggle with that. And I say, ah, I don't know. Um, I'm a, here's the deal. There's things where I'm, I'm not sure when loving your neighbor isn't protecting your neighbor. I don't know. I'm still, I'm working on that. Okay. But like, are there things that are, simply aren't in my life? Uh, things that I, um, that I probably worship that I don't realize it probably. My society brings with it blindness. And so I have to be careful. It's just not as clear cut as it is in places where they simply don't have money and they're working six days a week and they don't have time. And so like their lives are just more bare bones. They don't come with the same risks that ours do. And I'm not sure it's praise be to God that ours come with the risk that it does. We praise, thank you God for blessing our country because we're so wealthy. It's probably a blindness. We gotta be careful with that. We just gotta be careful. Thank you for our freedom. I do, I do. But that, just recognize that with some of those things comes potential for blindness, that we worship the government that gave us freedom or that we feel like our freedom came from. Even our forefathers would point to and say our freedom came from God. But like, who do we, who do we trust to mine that freedom or to protect it? Well, we're back in the infrastructure again. Okay? So again, not necessarily, not implicitly wrong things, but we're just going to be careful. That's what I'm saying. Look at it from the, different, from the revelation perspective that says we need the whole picture, not just part of the picture. Well, right after 9-11, there was a comment about uh, God bless America, and somebody said, why would he? He's not here anymore. We've pushed him out. We don't, we don't want him in the schools. We don't want him in the government. We don't want him in our families. We don't want him, you know, we don't want him in the streets. We don't even want him in the churches and all those kinds of so why So why would we ask for his protection? Why, why would he give us the protection? We're not honoring him with anything. So... It's, and it's something we've always, frankly, we've always risked as a country is because even, even as, we, as we look at freedom from a broad notion, right, um, Jesus is still not running the country he never has, right? And so you put, fine, you put stuff back in the schools, but it doesn't mean that people are going to believe it. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's, it's not, the, the government is not capable of the revival that the church is otherwise called to, that the witnessing church of Jesus Christ right. is otherwise called to. And so um, that's where we, we've gotten off a bit of a tangent as a as a Christianity, where we're fighting for the wrong things. We want, we're fighting for a nation that looks and, and, and maybe has a whiff of Jesus, but doesn't follow at all. And like, we, we're, where we've got off course is we've taken a concept that otherwise has some relevance to, um, to freedom in Christ, and we've made a government responsible for those things, as opposed to, as a people of God, being responsible for delivering the real good news, um, because otherwise it's just a puppet that fakes and sniffs a little like God. Our laws are a problem, our infrastructure is a 
problem like none of those are the kingdom of Jesus. And so we're just going to have to back off on what we've, how much time and effort we put into things and how much importance we put into a governmental structure. Even if it has an auspices of looking like Christ, it will be nothing more ever than pale in comparison. Frankly, it has a real opportunity to be a 666, right? To be something that looks and acts like it's supposed to be Christ, but isn't. Okay? And like I said, I, I said this last week, and I kind of want to reiterate this, is like I'm not saying don't participate in your government infrastructure. This is still your community. Your, your mayor is still in your community. Your community, like, you're still going to be part of these things because that is the infrastructure that you have and it impacts those around you. But, like, do not put your faith that the nation of America will otherwise produce God's kingdom. That is a lie. Um, and that is, that is trying to hedge off your witness onto an infrastructure. And that is never how God's community has worked. And it's not going to start working that way now. Okay, so just be careful of what we're, how much we're putting in. It's it's generally not a bail bailing out. It's just a right perspectives of what it's capable of doing and what it's not, and not asking government to do something that that God's people are like. One of the things that I just I beg that this would happen is for all the for all the arguments that we have about whether government should be funding healthcare. Uh, you might be be able to get me to admit um, that I think they're going to do it in a very inefficient manner to the extent that they'll do it. But the truth is. Will I argue with the proposition that people are getting ba- their basic health care needs met? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. You will not find me argue that one little bit. What I want, though, is that the government shows up and says, hey, we're offering free health care. And people go, no thanks, church is taking care of it. Hey, welf- welfare time. Hey, we're handing out money and food. No thanks. God's people got this under control. We created a gap here. Right. We, and then we're, then we're pissed that the government wants to step in and do something that the church is not doing. We need to be a little bit more honest about where, where, our, where we fit into kind of this, this infrastructure. Um, and again, like for all the sanctimonious arguments that we have about some of these things, um, we need to recognize that we've, a lot of them are trying to fill gaps that God may have laid on the church. All right. So just again, those aren't full perspectives and there's nuances in all those conversations, but just... Make sure that we're taking in things in kind of a broader thing. Um, we get caught up in our um, in our infrastructure arguments about our country, and we've kind of missed some of the kingdom talk that probably should undergird how we're just talking about those types of things. All right, I went on a tangent. It's eight twenty nine. Uh, we almost got through. Ooh, we, next week we'll start with Armageddon. Um, then they assembled them at the place that in Hebrew is called. Armageddon, the big battle that is the battle that never was, uh, will kick us off next week, and then we'll hope try to get through Revelation 19. All right, thanks, guys.